All right, guys. Hey, can we give a hand to the worship team this morning? I think they're just rocking it. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate it, man. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 72. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to be breaking it down into chunks. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I serve here at the church as well. Honored to be bringing God's word to you all uh, this morning. Uh, as you are opening up to Psalm 72, I want to pose this question to you to help prime the pump this morning. Uh, when you are voting for someone in office, whether at a federal or state level, so president, governor, city council, mayor, whatever it might be, what are the things you look for that make the ideal candidate? When you're voting for someone, what are the things that you look for that make the ideal candidate? Perhaps for some of you, character is really high on the list. You want someone, when you're voting for them, to be really high in character, so much so that they would be worthy of being imitated by others in society. Perhaps for others of you, it's not that you don't care about character, but you have other priorities. You want someone who not only says they're going to do something, but they're actually going to get the job done. If they say something, they're going to make it happen. Because here's the reality that I recognize for all of us. Uh, we are all impacted and influenced by leadership in some varying degree. Would you give me that? The influence that leaders have over us is significant. This influence that leaders have can either lead to our flourishing as a people or our languishing as a people. In fact, if you think of some of the most extreme cases in human history, Leaders have the ability to either bring life to a people or bring death to a people. So I don't think it's an overstatement for us to go ahead and say that leadership matters, especially when it's at such a high level as government and the implications it has on society. Is that echoey? Man, that is really echoey. I'm just hearing all this going on in my head. Um, the reason I bring up all this, church, I'm going to keep talking until it gets fixed. I'll, we'll go with that. The reason I bring all of this up, though, is for this reason. The psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 72, is a prayer that Solomon has for the kings that are going to follow after him. If you don't know who Solomon is, he is the son of the great king David. David, the king of Israel, he led well. The people loved King David. There was great prosperity and flourishing during King David's reign, and King David, on top of that, had great wealth. And after King David comes his son Solomon, and Solomon has greater wealth than his father did. He had greater prosperity and flourishing in the society than his father did. And so this psalm that we're looking at today, Solomon, I want you to picture this. Solomon's an older man, He's looking at the legacy that he's left behind, and he's thinking about the kings that are going to come after him. And his prayers, God, I pray that the men that would come after me, they'd be faithful men. My prayer for them is that they would leave a legacy well, that they would lead with, with great integrity, that they would care for the poor and the marginalized and the weak in their communities, and by so doing, they would have a vibrant and flourishing community that worships God. So that's Solomon's prayer, that's Solomon's idea, that's Solomon's mind in this psalm. So, if you have your Bibles opened up, Psalm 72, verses 1 through 7. We'll go ahead and look at those ones first and then break them down. Of Solomon, he says this, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. 
May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. How many of you parents and grandparents in the room this morning, show of hands, have used the God-given gift of repetition when talking to your kids? Show of hands. Almost all of you, a few of you, okay. Use the gift of repetition. Ruth and I, we don't have kids, but I certainly was the recipient of this growing up. Right? You tell your kid, clean your room, they don't do it. All right, clean your room, they don't do it. Our third time, hey, clean your room, and hopefully they get to it. Why do we repeat things? We repeat things for the purpose of not only helping the person to remember what we've said, but to emphasize a point. That's the reason why we go ahead and repeat things. And we see this throughout the Bible. You see this in the Old Testament with the prophet Isaiah. He has a vision of God sitting on a throne, this grand vision, and there's two angels that cry out to God, say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is not that God is three times holy, no more, no less. You could say God is holy a million times, and you still wouldn't capture how holy God is. It is to emphasize a point. That's why we repeat things. Even Jesus in the New Testament, he'll do this. When he wants you to lean in on your chair, when he wants you to pay attention, he'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. Some of you King James Version saints, it's verily, verily, I say to you. Uh, I do construction for a living. I'm a carpenter, and so you, I'm sure you've heard that famous phrase, which is measure twice, cut once. Yeah, you got a lot of guys that are on the job site that are trying to finish the job quickly, and so they'll measure once and cut upwards of three or four times. Ruin material, waste money. It matters. It definitely matters to, to repeat things. And so the reason I bring all of this up, church, is for this. The few verses that we looked up already, verses 1 through 7, there's a lot of repetition that's taking place, and I don't know if you noticed. Solomon, he's trying to highlight the characteristics of a king, and there's two things that he highlights, which is righteousness and justice. Now, just so we're clear on what these mean, I don't want to leave any ambiguity. Righteousness in this context means this, blameless conduct and integrity, what is correct and what is right. Justice means divine right action, to give just treatment of a verdict or a sentence. So Solomon's prayer is that the kings of Israel, the sons of David that would follow, they would live and lead with righteousness and justice in their bones. Now this is significant for a few reasons, church. This has implications for you and for me. First off is this, the recognition of God. By recognizing God, we would acknowledge where righteousness and justice come from. You get that? Verse 1, what did it say? It says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The psalmist, he's asking us to recognize this. We'd be incredibly mindful that there's someone in authority over ourselves. We're not the end-all, be-all, right? The way I see how this would manifest itself in their day would be this. As the king would go about, and I'm sure it'd be really easy for the king to, to throw his weight around, he'd recognize, oh, there's a, there's a king over all kings. And any authority I have right now, it's something to steward. And I can either steward it well, and hopefully God will bless that, or God, the great king, can take it away, but it's not my own. As the king would go about and he'd make his judgments, he would recognize, man, there's a judge over the entire universe of which I have to give an account to. And how I judge and how I lead is incredibly important. So I lead with caution. The recognition of this church for us is this. There being a God over everything should lead leaders, government workers, 
husbands, parents, business owners, anyone who has leadership in their bones to be incredibly cautious of how they use their authority. To be incredibly cautious. Because what happens when we don't acknowledge there's a God over us? What happens when we don't acknowledge there's a God over us? The second point is this. When we don't acknowledge we have a God over us, there's a loss of definition that takes place. If we remove God, we remove the definition of righteousness and justice. And if we remove God, then we get to this place where we're left to ourselves to define what righteousness and justice are. We're left to ourselves to define what is right and wrong. I don't think it's a coincidence, church, that in our day, as a group of people that identify as nuns increases, meaning those who don't believe there's a God, that as this group increases alongside of it, the increase of a lack of definition is happening as well. I don't think those just don't correlate. I think there is a correlation between those two. Because what's happened? Uh, we, we can't define gender. Uh, we can't define justice. We don't know who God is or what God is. In fact, we're getting to the place in extreme cases where math might be racist. This is what happens, church, when we do not acknowledge God. This is what happens when leaders don't acknowledge God and they don't lead with righteousness and justice but are left to make up their own definition about what is right and what is just. A loss of definition takes place. The third reason of why this is important for us and significant is this. Righteousness and justice go together. They go together. Uh, Solomon, he didn't pick two random characteristics and just hold on to those and run with them. Uh, these two characteristics, these two qualities, they are a 1A a one, and 1B. They, they go together with each other. Um, we're, we see it in this psalm. We're going to read other sections of Isaiah later, and we'll see it in there as well. Uh, it says in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, Jesus comes back to make war in righteousness and justice. But beyond the scope of the Bible, I want you to think of your own personal relationship with Jesus, Okay. Think of your relationship with Jesus. When you first believed and got to the point of understanding, hey, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I need someone to take away my sins, what happened? You placed your faith in Jesus, and righteousness was given to you. A righteousness that wasn't your own, a righteousness that you do not have, it was given to you. And what happened to Jesus on the cross? Well, Jesus on the cross, he got the justice that you and I deserve. The justice for people that rebel against God, people uh, that, that believe that God doesn't know what's best, but I know what's best. Jesus got our justice. So that what happened then? You and me might be declared justified. You see how these two go together. You see how righteousness and justice come together, not only through the Bible, but even in your own relationship with God. Now, this is interesting to me, and this is significant, because the cry in our streets in the last year, and even a couple years here in the greater Washington area, and greater Seattle area, has been this. It's been a cry in the streets for justice. We want justice. Now, just so we're clear, church, I want justice, and I know you want justice. But the cries in the streets for justice, they've been void of righteousness. And because they've been void of righteousness, therefore you could say they've been void of God. Now, I don't look down my nose at the people that cry out for justice, though. These are image bearers of God. They cry out for justice the same way you and I do. And the right Christian response is not to judge culture, but to first do some introspection, introspective looking at ourselves. And to come to the conclusion, hey, where do we fail? Where do we fall short? And for us in the church, we can talk about righteousness all day. But when it comes to justice, I think we need to ask this question. 
What steps have we taken towards justice? What steps have we taken as a church towards justice? Uh, I look at church history. We're not the best at this. But when I do look at church history, though, I see some really awesome points where these two come together. I think of someone like John Newton in the 1700s in England, a guy who was part of the slave trade. And then once Jesus saved him, he then goes and fights to try to demolish the slave trade. Praise God for that. You think of someone even more recently, like Martin Luther King Jr., a a man who's kind of an American prophet, if you will, who's trying to fight against racial justice. Praise God for him. And even in our current day, there's organizations that are Christian-ran that believe in righteousness and justice, and they're fighting against human trafficking around the world and abortion as well. I praise God for these people, but know this. All of those examples I gave you are people fighting for justice but have first grounded themselves in righteousness. They first begin with the author of righteousness. This morning, church, I want you to consider this. Is justice only a word for left-winged politics or does it belong to the church? Does it belong to the church? I believe it does belong to the church and I believe it belongs to the church because God's the one that defines what justice is. And so the point is this, church, the, the big image I want to give to you and present to you is this. Jesus is our great king. Amen? You give me that? Jesus is our great king. And as Jesus, our great king, leads and rules with righteousness and justice, and there's lots of people underneath him that trust him and believe in him, and that we desire to become like him, technical term for that is sanctification, the, the result of that would be that we would hopefully lead with righteousness and justice. And what would happen from that, what would flow from that then is a flourishing society and a, and a prospering society. That's the big image of this psalm. But I want us to consider this. What happens when people don't acknowledge God, don't acknowledge righteousness and justice? What happens? All right, we can look at our own culture. I think we should use God's word, though, as our authority for this. Isaiah 1, verses 21 through 23. God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah to his people Israel, and he says this. He says, how the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. We don't even need to dissect this section of Scripture to come to the conclusion, yeah, that's not a picture of human flourishing, right? We can just go ahead and say right off the bat, that's not a picture of human flourishing that we want to go after. Your princes are thieves. Those who lead you, they're thieves. Your silver's become dross, meaning it's become useless. Your your wine's mixed with water. Something that's meant to bring you joy has been watered down. And the people that are marginalized, the fatherless and the widows, they've been completely forgotten about. And the result is this. This is what happens when we neglect justice and righteousness. I don't know if you guys saw the verse on the screen, but those two words, justice and righteousness, they're in this section. These are always a tag, if you will, to help communicate a greater idea. So, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. Try to encourage you a little bit this morning. If this is the trajectory of societies and leaders without God, then what does one look like with acknowledging God and with acknowledging righteousness and justice? Well, we already read it, but let me reread some of those verses. 
Verses 3 and 6 and 7 say this. They say, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. This is a beautiful image of prosperity. This is a beautiful image of flourishing. Just so we're clear, I feel like I need to say this in, in churches. The word prosperity, it's not a dirty word, all right? The word prosperity is not a dirty word, despite those who do preach a prosperity gospel. They abuse their authority for their own selfish gain. They'll face judgment for that. The great judge will deal with them. But the word prosperity, it's a good word for us. I want to challenge you this morning, church, with asking you, what's your big view of Christianity worldwide look like? If more people believe in Jesus, if more people lead with righteousness and justice, do we lose or do we win? I'll give you two categories. Is this a lost war for Christians or is it more like the stock market for us? And here's what I mean by that. The idea in just kind of big evangelicalism is this, okay? God sent us here to subdue and cultivate culture. He's given us this mandate to preach the gospel to all nations. It hasn't been going well for us. We're being persecuted, whatever word you might want to use for that. And so Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to take his people home with him. I want to submit to you, church, that's not a win. That is not a win. If God sends us here, we fail, and then he takes us back to himself. That's not a win. I want to remind you, and I've already said this to you, church, last time I preached, but Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on, what's the word? Earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You think of the imagery when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. That is a defensive position, meaning the church is on the offensive on that. Revelation 21 is the picture, that grand picture, the new heavens and the new earth, not us going up to it, but rather it coming down to us. That means, church, there's something for us to do here. There, there's some work of which we can do now of taking ground for the glory of Jesus. So do you believe that Christianity is a lost war, or do you believe it's more like the stock market? Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I invest in some Dogecoin and uh, yeah, contrary to what Elon Musk said, it did not go to the moon, so that was disappointing. But what the stock market's supposed to do is this, right? You'll have some gains, and you'll have some losses. You'll have some great gains, and you'll have some losses. But over a span of a couple decades, hey, you've done really well. Over the span of a couple hundred years, hey, there's some really significant trajectories going in the right direction. You think of Christianity for a couple thousand years, what it's done. Yeah, society has gotten way better because of the church's influence and involvement in societies. So church, I, I want you to have this big image. I want you to think long game. The idea is this. If we continue on the mission of proclaiming the gospel to all nations, love God, love neighbor, lead with righteousness and justice, as this expands, the result is prosperity and flourishing societies, which often comes at the cost of sacrifice. I acknowledge that. It comes with a sacrifice but I want you to think long game. I want you to think not just about your kids, but your grandkids and your great-grandkids. What are you building for them that you're going to leave behind? I've said it before, and I'll say it again. This is, comes at a sacrifice, but church, all that we might lose cannot compare to what would be gained by pursuing this. I'm convinced of this. And so Solomon's prayer is this, that the king would lead with righteousness and justice, caring for the poor and the needy and crushing the oppressor, 
and that the king's dominion would expand beyond his nation's borders and it would become international. That's Solomon's prayer. In verses 8 through 11, we'll look at those. Solomon, he says this, he says, May he have dominion from sea to sea, from east to west, from the river, that's the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Uh, quite a few years ago, I was a youth pastor, did that for a couple years, and uh, uh, we were going through uh, uh, something called The Story. It was a book that was written to kind of give the great meta-narrative of the Bible. It was broken into chapters, and it was really digestible and easy for the youth to go through. And so we were going through this, and, and, and one month in particular, we were going through First and Second Chronicles. I don't know if you've read Second Chronicles, church, but it's fairly tedious. It's fairly repetitive. It's it's fairly exhausting when you read it. And so I was talking to the kids, and I could see they were exhausted from going through this, and so I asked one of them in particular, hey, what's wrong? And uh, the answer he gave me was this. He's like, I'm bored. And I said, well, why are you bored? And he says, it's the same story every week. Israel flourishes as a nation, and then they go and worship other gods. And when they go and worship other gods, things get bad for them. And when things get bad enough for them, they cry out to God. And when they cry out to God, then things get restored. And it's this cycle over and over and over again. And you know, I've thought about him as he said that, and my thought has been, man, I praise God that he said that. I really believe the Holy Spirit's intention for us when we read that is that we would be exhausted, that we would read king after king after king. And it would always come with a phrase. Some of the kings would have a phrase that said, hey, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's most of them. And there's just a handful of them where it says, hey, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But even those ones that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, they still failed in some way. They still consecrated idols to false gods in some way. And you read through this list over and over, and you're like, man, I just want one good leader. I just want one leader that'll do his job and do it well. I just want one leader that will lead with faithfulness and righteousness and justice. The, the last king... The last picture we have of Israel's king is a man named Zedekiah. And I want you to picture this. Behind him, Israel is in flames and rubble. And Zedekiah the king is cuffed hand and foot, and he's led away in slavery to Babylon. That's the last king Israel has. And we think about Solomon's prayer that we're going through, and he's praying that this king would have dominion that would go from sea to sea, from north to, north to south and east to west. And we think, man, Solomon's prayer was a bad prayer. Solomon's prayer failed. It didn't come to pass. His prophecy was no good. And yet, when we look at the meta-narrative of the Bible, we get glimmers of hope. And we're going to go ahead and take a look at it. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. We usually read this during Christmas. We'll do Christmas in August, if you're okay with that. Kind of sounds like a mattress commercial. Anyways, Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah, he says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with, listen to this church, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, 
from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You need to know that over this psalm we're looking at and over what we're reading in Isaiah is the shadow of a greater king that was born in the New Testament. Maybe we get to Matthew 1, and you need to know this about Matthew's gospel, just for your own personal study. Matthew's gospel is a continuation of the story of Israel. That'll really help you when you're studying that book. And Matthew 1 is a genealogy about this great king, and the first verse in Matthew 1 says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Oh, okay, so Jesus is a king. He falls in line with the kings. We get to Matthew chapter 2. And we read about Jesus who's being born in Bethlehem in a manger. And what happens? Well, there's wise men that come from the east. Another way of saying that is uh, kings from the east come. And these kings from the east come, and they bow before Jesus, and they worship him, and they bring him gifts. Now, church, I want you to think about that in light of what we just read. What did we just read? Allow me to reread it for you. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. I need you to see this. Do you see how Jesus fulfills this? Do you see how this points to Jesus? Do you see how every leader prior to Jesus failed in this, and yet it looks to Jesus, and Jesus fulfills this. I want you to see this. Jesus overshadows every failed king and leader. Now, you might see this, and you might think, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool, that's pretty significant, but we need to ask a greater question. Why is this important? Why is it important at all that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 72? Two reasons I want to give to you. The first is this. You have a giant that you need to face, okay? You and me, we have giants we need to face. The giant is a four-headed monster. It is Satan, sin, death, and the wrath of God. That's the giant you and I have to face. Are you guys familiar with David and Goliath? You guys know that story? I'm asking in church. You ought to know that story, okay? The story of David and Goliath, right? David goes ahead and, and slays the giant Goliath, and in pop culture, the story is, well, hey, well, you just go ahead and face your giant's head on and slay them. You'll be successful. You go to it. That is a wrong interpretation of the story. You and I, we are not David, okay? If we're assigning roles at all, you and me, we are Israel cowering in the corner because our giant is too big for us to face. You and me on our own, we cannot face Satan, sin, death, and the wrath of God. We will not win. And so someone has to go and fight that battle for us. And what does our great King Jesus do? What does Jesus, the son of David, go and do? Well, he goes to the cross for us, and he defeats Satan. He crushes the head of the serpent, fulfilling Genesis 3.15. He takes on our sin and gives us his righteousness. The wrath of God that was deserved for all ungodliness and poured out for all ungodliness is placed upon his shoulders. And death itself is eradicated, so the Christian might say, hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus, our great king, he goes and fights our battle for us. He saves us from our enemies and sets us free. That's the first reason of which why this is significant. The second reason is this, though. You and me, we are owned by something or someone. Let me say that again. You and me, we are owned by something or someone. As humans, we are created to be governed and ruled, and we will either be ruled by something that leads to our flourishing 
or to our enslavement, all right? This is how you and me have been created. Now, I know the American probably rises up inside you and says, hey, I didn't vote for this guy to be king. How come he gets to be king, right? I'm Canadian, so I'm indifferent to it. But he cries out this. Oh, rather, no. Um, you say, I didn't vote for this guy. Why would he do this, right? And let me say this, okay? As far as democracy goes, I believe it's a gift from God. I believe America is a good example of, hey, when democracy is used and people acknowledge God and lead with righteousness and justice, it leads to human flourishing, leads to human prosperity. I praise God for that. So that's good as far as a system of government goes. But as far as your and my nature, we have been created by God to be governed over, Okay? You can put whatever word you want, governed, owned, worshipped. In fact, the Apostle Paul, if he was here today, the language he would use is this. He would say, hey, you're either going to be a slave to sin, which is anything other than God, and that's going to lead to your death, or you're going to be a slave to righteousness, or to Jesus, and this is going to lead to righteousness. It's going to lead to peace. It's going to lead to flourishing. It's going to lead to joy. Those are two options. So yeah, church, you didn't vote for Jesus as your king, but Jesus, your great king, created you. He knows you. He knows what's best for you. And it's a matter of whether you trust him or not as king. So following Jesus is really going to lead to our flourishing, as we're reading this psalm. Solomon, he's talking about this king, and he goes on to talk about him having global kingship. And a question I think is worth asking is this, okay, how does Jesus lead then, right? We don't want a global tyrant who's leading over us, okay? Another way of asking this is this, who is worthy of such a task of global kingship? And we'll continue on with Psalm 72, look at verses 12 through 14. Solomon, he says this, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. I don't know if you noticed all of the people that were described on these verses, but they're all outcasts, right? The needy, the poor, the weak, the oppressed, these are all outcasts, and usually they would become pawns for the king's selfish gain, but not for our king, not for our king Jesus. Our king doesn't serve his own interests, rather he serves others. I want you to think of Mark 10, 45, when Jesus says, hey, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We also learn from this section, though, this. You can tell a lot about a character of a leader where how they treat the least of these. How did Jesus treat the least of these? What did Jesus do? Well, when Jesus began his ministry, he was hanging out with the crippled, the homeless, the prostitutes, tax collectors, all of which are weak and needy. And Jesus used his authority to rescue and to redeem them rather than to abuse them or expose them. And so when we're talking about Jesus' authority and Jesus' leadership, I want you to consider this. Jesus' authority is not abusive like a tyrant, but Jesus' authority is that of a shepherd who tenderly takes care of his sheep. Let me say that again one more time. Jesus' authority is not abusive like a tyrant, but it is that of a shepherd who tenderly takes care of his sheep. All right? In fact, so much so that we see this verse, their blood is precious in his sight. When you have this image, when, uh, when nations would go to battle, they put the weak and the marginalized in the front of battle, right? So their blood would be shed for the king's purposes. 
And rather than that church, it's actually our great King Jesus that comes to them and says, hey, you're not going to shed your blood for me. Rather, I'm going to go and shed my blood for you. That's what our King Jesus does for us. Now, we can look at this. We can look at what we just read, and the thought could be, yeah, we can eat people. Eh, That's someone else. That's not me. But I want you to think of yourself apart from Christ for a moment, all right? Apart from Christ, you are spiritually bankrupt. Apart from Jesus, the debt of your sin, it is too big for you to pay off. That's why the Apostle Paul, he would remind us, and he'd say, hey, remember Jesus, he who was infinitely rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might be made rich. You think of Jesus, the great king, infinitely strong, becomes weak and vulnerable, so that you and me by his weakness might have strength to stand in the day of judgment. I want you to think about this stuff, church. I want you to move from the place of Jesus just being a king, theoretical, king over all things, to ask the question, is Jesus king over you? I, uh, I'll confess to you, as far as Christian radio goes, I'm not a fan, okay? I'm sure I'm not alone here. Not a fan of Christian radio. I've tried to give it a chance once or twice, and we're talking about King Jesus. Those songs are, I can't tell if they're talking about a boyfriend or not. And so it doesn't really add up for me. But anyways, a couple years ago, I was listening to Christian radio, trying to give them a chance, and uh, they had a song that was on there, and one of the courses just hit the head on this. The chorus said, how many kings have stepped down from their throne? How many lords have abandoned their home? How many greats have became the least for me? Only one has done this for me. And church, you need to know that is spot on, those lyrics are right? Jesus is king whether we like it or not. Jesus as as set in his global kingship, cosmic kingship, if you will, in as much so as the sun is set in its place. Jesus is immovable. And yet, to think of this great cosmic king coming low for you, becoming weak for you, This is the move that you've got to make, church, from your mind, from Jesus being king, to ask the question, is Jesus king over your life? This great king became low for you. Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 1500s in Germany, he said this. He said, men perish because they don't know possessive pronouns. And what he means by that is this. You might be able to say Jesus is king. You might not even have a problem with that. But can you say Jesus is my king? You might be able to say Jesus is Lord. Can you say Jesus is my Lord? A song we sing often here in Christ Alone. Can you sing those lyrics genuinely? For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I want to ask you this morning, church, what should our response be to Jesus as king? What should our response be to this great king who cares for us, who are weak and oppressed, who redeems us and gives us life? Well, church, if, you're, if there's some of you here that don't know Jesus, I would ask of you to repent of your sin. That's by an acknowledgement of, hey, I am not God. Hey, I am not the end-all, be-all. There's one who's created me. There's one who knows me. I would repent of my sin. I'd put my trust in this great king. I would move from that to being baptized, pledging my allegiance to this great king. And from there, then, beginning to serve in the church and be in a place where you can contribute to the flourishing in the city here that God has placed us. That's what I would ask of you. For those of us that do know Jesus, though, I want to go ahead and close with this. It's the last couple verses in this psalm. Psalm 15 through 19. Psalmist, he says this. Long may he live, right? Long live the king. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. 
May prayer be made for him continually, and may prayer be made for uh, may blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, and on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, and his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. A little tool I want to give you uh, as you do your own Bible studies is this. In Psalms and much of the New Testament, the pattern is this. Orthodoxy followed by orthopraxy. Don't get scared by those big words, okay? It just means this. Uh, The Bible will reveal to you doctrine. What is true, what is right about the character of God, the character of man, the nature of this world. And then what follows from that then is orthopraxy to ask the question, okay, how should I live in light of this? What should I do with the knowledge that I now have about who God is and who man is? The language of this psalm is this, that we have a king who rules with righteousness and justice, who cares for the weak and the needy. And the result of this is flourishing and prospering societies. And so how this psalm ends is this. The proper response to this great king is a life of praise. All of life would be of worship, service, and submission towards Jesus. And so church, let me encourage you this morning. Some of you I know where you're at in life, but a lot of you I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know what, what pains or sorrows or, or suffering of which you're going through, but the encouragement is this. The way this psalm ends, the way the entire Bible ends is this. It all ends in praise to our great King Jesus and the great victory he has over every enemy we might face. It all ends in great praise towards this great king who fights our battles for us. We don't look to culture. We don't even look to our problems. We don't even introspect to ourselves. We look to Jesus as the one who goes before us. And so this morning, church, we'll take communion. As we take communion, I want you to be reminded of the great king who shed his blood on the battlefield for you and went before you. As we sing, church, I want us to sing loud. I want us to sing like we've actually got some victory in our bones. Like our King has actually done something for us in our lives. This morning, church, we trust Jesus and let's worship him as King. Let's pray.